1: This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Gary Krapovka. He's the president of WorldQuant, a highly regarded quantitative investment firm. Uh, Gary has a fascinating background, really insightful. Uh, 20 years at, at GSAM, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, where he was co-head of the quantitative investment strategies team. Uh, GSAM runs a a, a ton of capital. Uh, And uh, last year, he moved over to WorldQuant, which in and of itself was spun out from Millennium Management in 2007. Millennium Management is another giant quantitative uh, hedge fund. And WorldQuant runs a, a, a nice slug of capital for them. Uh, as innovative as so many different quantitative approaches are, WorldQuant is really stands out. They're an unusual shop. They, they do a lot of really interesting things. They're red, led by um, a, a very a, a kind of classic and, and brilliant founder and CEO. Um, and really, this is just a very intriguing and fascinating conversation. If you are at all interested in quantitative investing, understanding one of the key drivers of markets today, or or just to get a sense of of what people with advanced computer and mathematical degrees think about um, the financial engineering that's taking place in the markets these days, you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview of Gary Kropovka of WorldQuant. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Our special guest this week is Gary Krapovka. He is the president of WorldQuant, a highly regarded quantitative shop spun out of Millennium Management back in 2007, uh, Gary has a BA in mathematics and a master's degree in financial engineering from Columbia. He's also on the board of trustees of Rutgers University. Gary Kropovka, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Thank you so much, Barry. Great to be here.
1: So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by your background. You, you spent time um, at the quantitative investment strategies, co heading that at Goldman Sachs, and, and you have your financial engineering degree from Columbia. Any overlap with uh, Emanuel Derman? You seem to have followed his uh, footsteps.
2: Yeah, I actually, uh, I think I predated Emanuel Derman because I, uh, I was in the program when it first started back in the early wow. 2000s. Um, I did follow Emanuel, I guess, to, to Goldman Sachs, um, you know, uh, after he, had, uh, he was there. Um, but separate paths, but uh, there's definitely a correlation among the two. Um, I can share, I, I went to, Columbia, you know, after I joined the quant group at Goldman, uh-huh. um, there was uh, you know look, looking around the, the space, there were a lot of folks with some pretty advanced degrees, and uh, decided to to try to marry the computer science as well as the engineering with some of the business side to uh, you know to to be better trained in the uh, in the quant field.
1: Huh. So so you eventually become co head of quantitative investment strategies. At GSAM, what what was that experience like?
2: So I would say I spent a little over twenty years in the same group, and you know, I, I it really drove what I love about you know uh, my job, which is quantitative investing. It's something that I have a huge passion for. I love you know dealing with data and figuring out problems, and you know, there were certainly a lot of investment uh, problems that we dealt with in in that in that group. And, you know, really uh, compelled me to, to go in and, and join WorldPont for, for, you know, even other opportunities. But, you know, while I was at Goldman, did a number of different things on the research side, on the portfolio management side, on the product development side, the client side. And so had a, had a host of experiences that I cherish, had a great, exp- great uh, time there, learned a ton, and, uh, and now I'm here at the WorldPont for the last uh, roughly six months.
1: So we're going to talk more about world quant in a a few minutes. Let's stick with the big data you referenced uh, at Goldman and elsewhere. You know, big data is almost a cliche these days. How is it used in quantitative investing?
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, when I think about big data, and, you know, it's a, it's a large term, but I would say, you know, we're all consumers, not just in the investment or in the quant group, but this whole concept around big data is affecting each and every one of our lives. We're all trying to have an, have an information edge. We're trying to make better decisions. We're trying to, you know, utilize as much data to, to make informed decisions of where we're spending our time, whether it's things like going on vacation or, you know, figuring out where you, what restaurant you want to go to. And so, you know, the world has moved beyond things like Zagat um, and really trying to understand the idea of uh, there's a lot of things uh, that will provoke what you want to do or where you want to spend your time and where do you want to invest in. And so this whole concept of big data is really to take, you know, anything and everything that may be applicable to a company and try to learn from it. And so, you know, there's just this massive amount every time we click on something, every time we move, there's all this data that's being captured, and really, you know, one of the great things about being a quantitative investor is that we have tools and techniques to take all this awesome amount of data which comes in many forms, and I could touch on that, but it comes in many forms and convert that into some insight or some informational edge that helps us predict companies or, you know, particular asset class. So this whole concept of big data, absolutely here to stay. I'd say it's much broader than the investing business. It's happening, you know, all of our lives. We're all sitting with, you know, phones in our pockets that have massive amounts of information. And so really the goal of, of all this big data is to create an informational edge to know something that maybe somebody else doesn't, or, um, you know, or to be able to leverage that in, in, you know, pursuit of learning something else.
1: So give us, give us an example. How can you use a data set uh, specifically to identify opportunities that other people that aren't looking at that data might miss?
2: Sure. So I I think there's, there's, tons of data out there that you know one can glean We could take an example of you know looking through um analyst reports and you know a lot of people read analyst reports and so you know things you can do is try to pick up on their sentiment and so how are analysts starting to change their mind about a particular company you know is a pretty common example of you know figuring out how you know you can train a computer to read all of these words that some of these analysts are putting together Um, that might be one example um looking at you know what's in the newspaper and trying to gauge sentiment around you know, what's popular and maybe what topics are interesting and what companies may be related to those topics and are those topics trending positively or negatively. Those are some examples of, of ideas where you know, there, there's something out there that you know, not as comp- may not be coming out of a company's financials, but it's something that's happening around the company that might be impactful. So, you know, those are two examples of of items that you know you'd constitute as big data, because you're looking at massive amount of whether it's research reports or news articles to kind of get a gauge of can I have a better picture of that company's fortunes? And I would say you know one of the things that we do at WorldQuant is you know there's not just three ideas or five ideas, there's millions of ideas of ways to to navigate and have a, a view on a company, and, and big data affords us the opportunity big data along with some, you know, some great analytical tools to be able to, you know, kind of have views on particular companies.
1: Huh? So, so how does that play into things like smart beta or factor based approaches? Is is that something that you can apply, um, large data sets towards identifying new variations on?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, you're touching on an important component. If we think about the quant industry, You know, really started with a lot of these kind of, let's call them smart betas or, or traditional measures of factors. So thinking about things like value or momentum, value being a cheap company relative to its book value, as an example, momentum. So if a stock is starting to trend in a favorable direction, will it continue that particular trend? And so, you know, the whole idea around analyzing all this data. You know, as quants, or the original quants, you really wanted to play off the law of large numbers. And so you had a lot of of data, you had information on each and every company, thousands of companies, and you tried to rank companies by these particular metrics, price to book, or some measure of momentum, and you'd create a portfolio around those kind of quote-unquote smart betas. And, you know, that tried and true works over time. And I think, you know, as the industry has evolved, the smart beta strategies, um, there's now more interesting other ways of evolving and utilizing things like big data to be able to similarly look at those, look at factors, so very similar to rank companies. So your quants always want to play the breath game, meaning spread out their bets, have a lot of different views on particular companies. But what the alternative data and, and Big data allows us to do is really play the depth game, so know a lot mm-hmm. more about a particular company as opposed to just their price to book. So, you know, back to your original question, the smart beta strategies, you know, which are you know largely common, um, implementable, absolutely use large amounts of data, um, you know, in a pretty uh, uh, academically proven, you know, well thought out, but have been around for many decades.
0: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: So, so one of the phrases I, I've been reading about is a variation of that, customized beta. What, what is customized <laughs> beta?
2: Yeah, so it's a, it is an interesting topic, customization. I would say when we think about, when you think about customized beta in the industry, um, you know, there's, there's really two things that are happening. One is um, what types of, I'll call it bets, would you like to make? So, you know, do you want to bet on value stocks? Do you want to bet on companies that are, um, have higher dividend payers and you're able to customize what you want to place a wager on? Um, The other part of the customization, which continues to be a pretty interesting trend in the industry, is there are certain ESG factors that one may want to hold near and dear and want to have companies in their portfolios that express the beliefs that they, you know, have and want to express. So, for example, you know, I don't want to invest in tobacco stocks or I don't want to invest in, you know, something that is going to negatively impact the environment. And so you can you know, with quant tools, you can figure out, okay, what are those companies or how do they fall into those categories, whether it's an industry or the percentage of revenues a company is going to get from, you know, let's say emissions, um, and then be able to cr- create a portfolio to identify, you know, whether it's a factor bet around value or momentum and or, um, you know, different types of exposures that they want. So, for example, things like tobacco or or a mission. So you can customize the what your equity portfolio looks like relative to a benchmark or just an absolute.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what you do at WorldQuant. What does the president of the firm's jobs responsibility look like?
2: Great Barry. And yeah, so so as as president, which I'm extremely fortunate to have joined such an you know incredible team, you know, I'd say really three things that I, I focus on. You know, one is overall Business strategy, um, help with the operating of the, operating of the firm, and then add some leadership on the investing on the investing side, and it really that, that breaks down into kind of four key elements. That, you know, in terms of my role, and, and I work very closely with our CEO Igor Tolchinsky, um, mm-hmm. and really thinking about the following four things. One is vision. So you know, where, where should we be spending our time? I would say, interestingly, we've got you know roughly a little over six hundred quantitative people. And so, you know, we feel like we could solve a lot of uh, interesting problems, um, and really one of, one of our jobs is to ensure that we're focusing on the right ones to solve. And so, you know, be, you know setting out that vision, um, keeping people focused, um, making sure that incentives are aligned, we're allocating resources to tackling the right problems and, and remaining focused on those types, um, speed, speed. You know, one of the things that, you know, in an organization that has over 600 people, you want to make decisions quickly. Um, Igor does a terrific job of, you know, of of, of leading, and I attempt to help him with that in in terms of making decisions, making sure things escalate very quickly um, so that we can continue our focus and our vision. And then the last thing I spend a decent amount of time on is talent and, you know, how do we acquire talent? How do we promote a culture? of collaboration, um, intellectual stimulation. You know, a lot of quants in general we like to be intellectually stimulated. So how do we continue to do that and create a culture where ideas can be shared and collaborated uh, across the firm? So those are are where I've been spending my time over the last uh, six months.
1: What sort of programs do you have to incentivize your staff?
2: Sure. So so we have uh, many different ways that um, we try to incentivize our people. Um, in terms of the, you know, what we do for our uh, for our researchers, and so we have several different uh, challenges that we have uh, around around the world to, you know, to, to incentivize uh, people's work, and so you know that's just yet another um, piece of the puzzle where um, you know we're, we're trying to promote a particular activity or a pr- particular research and be able to um, you know incentivize them, call them out. Uh, reward them for, uh, you know, for, for doing some, some really good work. And so, you know, we have many of these. And I think one of the, the unique things about this firm is that we have many different competitions where, uh, you know, where people can, our, our teams can be incented to, uh, to, you know, do different things and to use their mind a little differently and have the right, uh, you know, incentive structure to be able to, to, uh, to be rewarded for those.
1: So, so you're creating these, um, for lack of a better word, competitions internally to solve an investing problem or equation or issue, and everyone who works in the firm can basically throw their hat in the ring and say, this is the way I think we can solve this problem. And then you run the tests and, and figure out who's the winner on that? Or is it real time, and hey, this is the best... Results based on your suggestion.
2: Yes, so so we we divvy up. We have several competitions uh, around around the firm, um, with you know set incentives uh, for each of them, and we kind of have a group of people that try to tackle this. And instead of it being relative to others in the firm, there we're saying, okay, here's a particular um, strategy that we want to spend some time on. Let's see what you can develop, um, and so that's you know that's a, an area where you know we have projects that you know might not fit into uh, the core research that we do on a daily basis, but you know maybe a little more, um, you know a little more out there. Maybe we're trying to look at a, a different asset class, and we want to uncover. So we realize you know the, the upfront R and D or the research is going to take a little bit longer, and so we want to incentivize them to go out and um, you know and really think creatively about about capturing and we incentivize them accordingly. because so they're taking time oh. out of their kind of core to really push the envelope a little bit more uh, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of figuring out something unique.
1: What, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, hey, how is WorldQuant differentiated from other firms? But, but things like the accelerator platform, these sound somewhat different than what we typically hear about at a, at, at a lot of shops. Are these common in the world of quant, or is this a little more unique to what you guys do?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think um, sometimes people may do this, uh, um, you know, for, you know, to try to recruit people, and I've heard of, of people doing that, but putting it as a systematic way, you know, internally, I think is something quite unique. I would say when we think about our, you know, our group, and, and really one of the, the compelling opportunities that at least I had when I, when I thought of Of joining and fortunate enough to join Worldquant is, you know, we've got over 600 people around the globe. We operate in uh, 23 offices, 13 countries. Um, So we've got unbelievable global diversity. And so I think that's, you know, one thing that makes us um, quite unique. Um, So we operate in in many different places. We have many different opinions. Um, We've we've always promoted diversity, diversity of thought, um, diversity of alphas or Drivers of return when we invest, and so you know, having programs that can continue to incentivize people um, and really create a collaborative and you know, I would say competitive in a a good way, um, where where people continue to be intellectually stimulated. I think that's really what you know really drives the firm, the collaboration. Um, We just recently did a. uh, a research tour, a virtual research tour, and myself and Igor and a few other the senior folks kind of did a, did a tour around, and, and you know, it, it's unbelievable when, you know, people can promote the collaboration. They're sharing with us some of the research, and the first thing they say is, I'd like to acknowledge the four or five people that helped uh, with, this, with this research project. And so, you know, just the idea around col- true collaboration, true appreciation for where you're getting assistance. From you know, I think it was really makes makes this place a pretty unique unique uh, unique place to be.
1: Worldcom was spun out a millennium by Igor Tolchinsky, who is the founder and CEO. Tell us a little bit about your boss. Yeah, so so when I first met
2: Igor, um, he, he was just so intellectually stimulating. I mean a brilliant, brilliant investor, brilliant man. Um, you know, extremely charitable. Um, some of the things that he's done, um, you know, I'll say we uh, are just uh, are really spectacular, and you can see a lot of those on the web. Um, he's written some really interesting books, and just his vision, his ability to articulate, um, you know, where we're going, uh, and, and, and collaborate very well. I'd say the other thing that is just very impressive is his decision-making. And I think I've observed a lot of quants over the years. You know, you kind of get into the analysis paralysis. Um, You know, there's always another test you can run on something. You know, Igor, to his credit, is a decision-maker, and it is – just great to to be able to partner with him for six months, for the last six months, and you know look forward to for for many many uh, years and decades to come. But he is you know someone who really does make decisions, takes in all the information, um, and you know has really built an unbelievable business uh, here at Wolfmont.
1: So when I normally speak to a firm and I say, "Hey, what's your firm's investment philosophy?" Usually I get a sentence that sums everything up in in one nice little soundbite. I get the sense that you're operating a whole lot of different approaches. It might be a little harder to pin you down to one philosophy of of the firm. What is WorldQuant's investment philosophy? So
2: so World WorldQuant's uh, investment philosophy is really, you know, pretty pretty simple. Global, uh, leverage our people and provide them the tools and and technology to to make returns for our investors. I mean, that's really, you know, in a nutshell, you know, what we're trying to do. Um, we, we have a very systematic way in which we do it. We try to leverage the law of large numbers and have millions of different alphas that we can leverage. We put them together in a portfolio and then we execute and make them a reality through trading. So, you know, the investment process is is quite simple and straightforward, but the uniqueness of our philosophy is that we are extremely global in terms of our people. Um, we do believe in, in playing the uh, breath game. We have, we have a lot of alphas, uh, a lot of ways to look at companies, and we try to leverage that throughout our process and create portfolios that, that drive return for our clients.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the past year, which was, some people have called it unprecedented, when you're crunching numbers to try and find a pattern, how can you deal with the possibility of events which have simply never occurred before?
2: Yeah, Barry, that's a terrific question. Um, You know, that really separates the, you know, the quants, quote unquote, and the quant investors. And so, you know, one of the the things that makes our job so uh, interesting, I find, is the ability to adapt and really to to be market practitioners as well as as quants and and i think that really makes great quant investors so you know if we think about 2020 and also in, in 2021 thus far you know we've seen you know obviously unprecedented events um you know whether it's around covid or you know other types of uh you know of, of events that that have happened over the last year which which ramifications have caused very large moves in you know kind of common let's call them factors or expressions or, or buckets of particular stocks or characteristics of stocks. You know, for example, you know, things like um, momentum we talked about uh, before, value. Um, these have had some pretty unprecedented moves. Um, you know, there's been, you know, for value about 15 uh, standard, standard deviation moves that, are, that were above two in 2000 and, um, you know, in 21 Uh, just massive moves, Uh, when you think about a simple five standard deviation move, means that that happens uh, once, one day, every approximate 14,000 years. So to your point, there's been no shortage of massive moves, um, you know, largely because there's been such a big shift. And so I think as quant investors, the way we try to approach it is to, is to Adapt as quickly as we possibly can for some unforeseen event, obviously, we try to predict whatever we can in advance, um, but to the extent uh, you know you have something like uh, covid you know you you want to think about companies that are going to be largely affected because of that, and there 's two approaches: one is you can try to risk manage, which is usually what we would do, which is you know, listen, this is a once in a lifetime event. Let's try to immunize our portfolios from those. So whether, you know, it's a it helps or hurts stocks, let's try to immunize ourselves. And the other is to say, okay, let's try to get a sense whether there's gonna be some type of trend here or there's some, you know, ability to, to create alpha or some excess returns. Um, when these events happen. So, you know, you could think about binary events, so things like elections that have happened um, and what the ramifications are. You could think about things like trade. Um, You could think about companies' exposure to, you know, things like Bitcoin when they announce. And what do you do about it? And so, you know, we think about the world in characteristics. So we call them factors. And so you can create these, quote-unquote, factors and say, I want to have a portfolio that... Whether those factors do well or poorly, my portfolio will not be affected. So that's really the way we've we've thought about a lot of 2020 and, and 21. And our investment team has just done a terrific job of being able to navigate that and identify some of these risks that they haven't seen before. We try to codify it in a systematic way. And then focus our attention on, you know, on really where we believe we can make money. Um, and that's a lot of these, these millions of alphas that we, you know, believe have been time tested for, for years. So that's how we think about, you know, dealing with some of these unprecedented moves that we've seen in, you know, things like short interest and momentum and value that have happened over the last you know, 12 months or so.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Huh. So, so I'm intrigued by the concept of, of something um, that's so many standard deviations away from the norm that it's really a one in a 14,000 year event. Those sort of tail risks how can we anticipate them on a quantitative basis? And and more specifically, um, think back to January 6th and, and the attempted insurrection in the U.S. Capitol. How, how can you quantify that? And we've learned since that that actually came pretty close to, I don't know if I would call it successful, but but pretty close to having the rioters access the um, various people in congress maybe even the vice president how how do you factor that into to your um analyses
2: so so i would say you know uh, i'll I'll take it up a step in in terms of just in general how we think about it It, it, but it's really about you know trying to identify uh, things that will impact um, companies and you know what what are the ramifications and and i think that's really the way we try to to think about that so you know in that specific case uh, in terms of w- what would happen to particular companies, um, you know, those those events are, you know, relatively, um, you know, quick moves. We try to, you know, be very diversified in many different ways. And, you know, that's probably one of the first times I've used that term, but I would say the diversification point is so critical in investing. Um, whether you're a quant investor or you're any type of investor, it's, it's definitely an extremely helpful um, attribute when you have events like this occur. And so, you know, creating, you know, different ways to look at risks um, as quickly as you possibly can and adapting a portfolio, you know, we think leads to, you know, very successful outcomes in the long run.
1: How did you guys look at what was taking place with uh, things like Robinhood and Reddit? To, To me, that was reminiscent of, you know, late 90s action, although it certainly was faster and maybe more powerful than we've seen uh, in the past, how do you look at these sort of group uh behavior that that social networks can foster
2: yeah again we um so so I think we look at it in terms of you know from a from a liquidity standpoint you know what what are the you know how is this affecting the amount of the amount of uh, ability to trade our securities um, you know we we really do try to minimize I mentioned earlier we, we try to minimize. The amount of risk we take from any particular factor, and, and things like you know short interest, is something that you know is a is a pretty common factor that you know folks um, like us would would try to identify and, and minimize um, our you know how, how much our, our stocks will move because of that. Um, I would tell you, you know big picture, thinking about liquidity, and obviously the, there there is a big retail you know retail input um, to liquidity. They tend to you know trade it trade, you know, stocks that are, that are relatively cheap in price, um, you know, and I think there's some, you know, some pretty interesting data around that. I would say for, you know, for our purposes, you know, we look at things like liquidity and depth of market and how that's being impacted. And I would say over the last 12 months, you know, interestingly, the, the world of market microstructure has gotten pretty complicated. You know, to the extent you could trade, you could trade, you know, an ABC stock in 40 different venues in the U.S. Yeah. is interesting enough. You know, it's across 16 different exchanges or roughly about 16 different exchanges. And so, you know, we spend a lot of our time looking at things like volumes and spreads and, and overall liquidity. Um, And so that's really where we see, um, you know, those effects. And and I would say, you know, it looks like over the last 12 months, it's been a pretty rocky, um, you know, rocky area. But, you know, we're pretty much back to, you know, kind of pre-pandemic levels when I think about quote sizes, bid-ask spreads, um, you know, for for S&P type names. So it looks like things are kind of getting a little bit back to normal in terms of of market liquidity, depth, and, and spreads.
1: So you mentioned value earlier. Uh, I think this is up until this quarter. I think the underperformance of value versus growth—it it could be the longest run we've seen of growth dominating value since, since at least since the crisp database goes back to, you know, 1917 or something like that. Uh, how, how do you think about something that's? rather unusual in those terms. How how does the Fed factor into this? Or or is that even an input to, to what you're building in your models?
2: Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's exact. It's very consistent with, again, thinking about it as a, as a very diversified portfolio. And, you know, value investing over the long term has done reasonably well. Um, I'm, I'm very impressed that you went back to the uh, CRISP database, so kudos <laughs> to you. Um, it, it, when I think about, uh, you know, value, again, value on, on itself, we, we tend to take an approach where we want to be more diversified. We don't want to just bet on value. We want to have things that have growth attributes and really really have some, you know, we call it idiosyncratic or some specific type of return where we think that's our edge. And, and in terms of other types of factors like value or growth or low volatility, um, those are something that we want to have a very modest amount of exposure or, you know, we really don't want to, we don't necessarily make a lot of money on that particular aspect because it's very common and it's also subject to right. very sharp moves. And so, you know, we aim to have a little bit more consistent, persistent results. But to your point, you're right. This is it's been an unbelievable um, challenge for value. We have seen a little bit of a turnaround, um, you know, since since the election. Um, And so, you know, value started to do a little bit better. Um, But your point is well taken. But I think it just speaks to our philosophy of you want to have, you know, many different ways of looking at the fortunes of a company and diversification, diversification, diversification is key. And at Worldquant, we do that with millions of alphas. We have many different portfolio managers, many different ways of combining our alphas. And so, you know, we kind of live and breathe from diversifying of our people to our alphas, to our portfolio managers, and then to our execution. So, Again, I think, you know, your observation is spot on. And I would say we, we as, a, as a group try not to take too many bets in one
1: place. Huh. Interesting. You know, you mentioned certain strategies are popular. And I, I can't help but think back to the um, quant quake that took place about eight years ago, where a lot of quantitative strategies were very similar at different shops. And, and we saw what had become uh, a fairly crowded trade maybe it's a decade ago it's even longer ago what what do you make of that
2: crowded trades yeah so, so it, it was more than a decade ago is you know I think it was uh, almost Wait. 13 and a half years ago um, yeah okay you know, I think I think that was a huge lesson learned uh, for for quant investors um, I think it was a period where uh, you know there was uh, you know some some shops had a fair amount of complacency. Where they didn't continue to use their research, there was more into there was um you know there there should have been a lot more pushing in terms of research and and I think you look back and you saw events that you know for a number of reasons one is there was a fair amount of leverage in the system and so you're able to amplify your returns with leverage um, and leverage is great if you're always going to have uh, high uh, high positive returns, but when you don't, you know, leverage is is a you know is a is a very big challenge because people call up and ask you for money and you need to pay them. So, I think you know that that really was one of the biggest issues of of O seven. Um, but I'd also say there was crowded traits, as as you correctly point out. And so I think one of the goals that we have at WorldQuant is continue to differentiate, continue to create unique um, ways of making money for our clients, investing in our almost 300 researchers to try to continue to innovate and be much less crowded than other people. Again, we want to be unique. We don't want to be susceptible to those large movements in terms of those, quote-unquote, crowded trades. And that's really a huge goal and, frankly, was a big lesson learned for, I believe, the quant industry um, that happened you know, almost 14 years ago.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the future of quant investing. You mentioned previously that the industry has learned from past mistakes. It's involved. Tell us a little bit about the direction the industry is evolving towards.
2: Sure, Barry. I I think the... You know, the quant industry will continue to evolve in, in, in places like data, in places like storage, in places like analytics, um, and the tools that, are, that one can use to try to, you know, figure out the fortunes of a company have, have increased exponentially. And so, you know, the amount of data that's out there, amount of data that can be stored, amount of data that can be analyzed, the simulations that one can run, has grown like i said absolutely exponentially and really for a quant investor it's terrific because you know the the world is kind of coming in our direction the amount of data we think you know one of our edges to be able to take data synthesize it and create information and drive returns and and, you know we think here at worldquant we're extremely well positioned uh to be able to do that and so you know to be honest i think it's a you know it's an absolute golden age for us as quant investors um, in terms of kind of where the industry is evolving.
1: Really interesting. Any of this evolution surprise you? What What has taken place that um, either you didn't see coming or you saw coming and didn't think would happen, and it happened anyway?
2: Right. I, I would say you, you know one of the surprises is is the adoption. Of, you know, more and more quantitative investing strategies in general. Um, Just given uh, everyday people's thoughts on, you know, the use of of computers and use of your phone to drive information, it's happening across most every industry. I guess I'm, I'm surprised, happily surprised, that more and more kind of investment folks aren't employing more and more quantitative strategy. Good for us from where we sit. But I'm just surprised, you know, I think everybody wants to, you know, if you're at a dinner party or you're getting asked a question, it's got to be empirically backed. You're going to look it up as quickly as you possibly can. And you want to test that, there, whatever someone said, whatever hypothesis, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of skeptics, and they can be proven yay or nay very quickly. And I'm just, you know, I guess I'm, I'm surprised that that's not happening more and more in the, in the investment industry. So that would be one of the you know, I would say my, my biggest surprises. But I'm but I'm okay with that.
1: Huh. You you mentioned earlier trying to read sentiment data from analyst reports. Uh, I have read about firms trying to actually scrape uh, market wide sentiment data off of social networks like Twitter. What what does that look like and, and can you really find an investable edge from the 280 characters of millions of people who know um, relatively little, uh, although they may not know that they know relatively little. What, what signal is in all that noise?
2: Uh, sure, Barry. I, I, I think you're, you're touching on a really important component. As You think about all this alternative data. You know, it's, it's what do you do with it and, and how do you utilize it? And I think, you know, uh, a diversified approach of u- using things like satellite images, Uh, using things like social media, um, you know, can be quite impactful, you know, some of which might be very, very short run. Some of it might have more longer term, you know, ramifications, things like credit card transactions, web clicks. I mean, there's so much alternative data out there that, you know, if you can think about how best to utilize it, again, it's that whole concept of marrying kind of technical acumen. And so you, you understand data, you understand uh, something about you know putting data together to create some type of expected return, but also marrying that with some business acumen, you know I think is is really exploding. And so you know whether it's social media, whether it's satellite imaging, whether it's you know clicking on you know getting um, vendors that that provide some of this data uh, all, all anonymized. To be able to have a view of, of where companies' fortunes may be is certainly something that the industry is seeing. Um, there's a massive amount of data vendors out there. There is some consolidation in some of those data vendors, but there's a lot of data out there to be able to employ not just social media, but other types of, of data that you know can be informative of a, of a company's fortunes.
1: Yeah, I've been kind of fascinated by the satellite data and how granular it can get, not just tracking ships carrying goods or oil around the world, but how deep the ships are sitting in the water that gives some insight as to how are they f- traveling full, half full, three quarters, that, that, that's just astonishing stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean it. It really is, and and I think you know. Listen, I think we all we all uh, have our phones, and and you know, I could I could kindly track my kids on on Life 360 and figuring out where they are. Um, you know, th- this is happening. It's part of our everyday lives, um, and uh, and I you know, it, it's it could be insightful information. You know, certainly helped me you know with my kids and and you know <laughs> other parts whether it's uh, you know tankers or whether it's uh, you know clicks. Uh, you know, these, these are insights that you know can be you know potentially telling again i would go back to my other comment about diversification so in isolation these you know will you know almost for certain will not work all the time um but if there's some level of insight that you can gain from a piece of this data or a way to look at this data and then you marry that with millions and millions of other things you know you can have a pretty good sense of of that company's fortune so you know again it's it's really about diversification and not thinking about you know these pieces of data in isolation um you know you we had talked a little bit about value and other types of factors again i think you know the approach that that one that most quants take um is really to think about diversification um as as a really helpful way to to produce Um, you know, consistent results for clients. And I think that's really, uh, you know, the key to, you know, how most quant and and at WorldQuant, you know, we think about diversification at pretty much every step of the way, whether it's our people, whether it's the uh, expected returns that we try to generate, um, or portfolio managers, and, and how we go about executing and making that a reality.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: So you talked several times about how gigantic these data sets are and how fast they're growing. How How big can these get and at what point do they become unmanageable? I mean, when is too much data, too much. Yeah.
2: Um, we, we certainly have not found that out yet. Um, you know, the nice thing about it is there's you know, the the amount of data, you know, is increasing exponentially. There's some, you know, unbelievable stats on, on just that massive amount of growth. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, we've spent an enormous amount of time figuring out how to take in that data, how to collate it, how to check that data. Um, you know, again, it's the gory details of data, but it's um, but it's fascinating. I know uh, IDC IDC um, you know reported. I'll quote them: more than five billion consumers interact with data every day. Five billion consumers interact with data every day. By 2025, they say that number will be six billion or three quarters the world's population. So data is getting created again exponentially. I think this the thing that we spend a lot of time on is how do we ingest that? How do we come up with processes to be able to, you know, Ingest it. How do we store it? How do we analyze it? Again, and that's that's really uh, you know one of our integral parts of what we do and how we do it. And you're seeing this in the investment industry. You're seeing this in many different industries. But I think that's one of the exciting parts. And. Um, You know, and it's a lot of data, but again, I think that's really, you know, we've been waiting for these times for for a long time to continue to have more and more data. It allows us a huge opportunity to drive an edge um, because we think we know what to do with that type of data um, to pair that with some of our, uh, you know, smart researchers and figuring out what are the insights. So, you know, I I, I think the, the other challenge that we face in terms of your comment about too much is, again, signal to noise, right? What's what's a signal, meaning what, what gives you insight, and what's just noise. And so part of our jobs as researchers and portfolio managers, as good quants at WorldQuant, is to, is to kind of distinguish between the signal, meaning does this have some value, does it provide me insight, or is it really just noise and, you know, not really worthy of, uh, of, of allocating any investment to it?
1: Huh, quite interesting. Let, let me change gears on you a little bit. We, we recently heard rumblings about possible changes in tax policy coming out of the new administration. I know at Goldman, I know at GSAM you did a lot of work on um, tax efficiency. From, from your new perch, how do you think about things uh, like tax efficiency in investing? Is that something that's still within your uh, bailiwick or or is it more institutional and you're you're less focused on tax
2: yeah so, so i mean the way we think about it and i i 'm happy to spend you know, some time on on just generally tax efficient investing so i i think it is it's you know it's a very useful piece and i've had some prior experience on it but but more substantively on you know kind of what we do now at WorldCon, you know if there is a change to tax policy we're going to you know figure out how it's going to impact a particular company you know our corporate tax is going to go up or down um and how will that impact you know cash flow or you know something on on a company statements um so that that's really how we would tackle it and you know we'll we'll understand how we should you know update our accounting um, for for those types of events and, and adapt accordingly, like like you would expect, you know, most investors to do, um, you know, in the array of tax-efficient investing. You know, I'm happy to spend a few minutes there, but you know, it's, we don't. Uh, that's really not one of our core focuses at, at WorldQuant.
1: You're, you're you're looking more as to how the changes in taxes impact either the bottom line for the companies or their position relative to their competitors, um, and, and what. The tax code means uh, to their valuation? Is that is that a fair description? Like I know you guys aren't tax loss harvesting the way um, a, a traditional um, uh, advisor would. You're, you're running a very different portfolio for, for a different audience. So your perspective is what does this mean to the companies that we may or may not own and, and how does it affect them relative to their competitors? Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a fair statement. Again, we we want to see as as Biden, you know, institutes new policies, how that'll affect corporations and and frankly, that goes, you know, beyond, you know, tax policy, other types of policies. And so, you know, if there's international policies that'll affect trade or or any type of um, you know, of of Things that come out of Washington, or frankly, any any other government around the world, even we are a global organization. You know, we're going to attempt to take that into account um, to try to understand it, understand what the ramifications are to companies, and being able to position our portfolios accordingly. And that's that's you know we do that whether it's a regulatory issue or an event that we talked about. Again, our ability to adapt and understand what's going on in markets, what's going to affect companies or particular asset classes, is really you know. One of the fun parts of the job as being a quantitative investor.
1: Huh? What What are other fun parts of the job? What What do you enjoy doing most um, as presidents of World Com- Quant?
2: So, so I, I will tell you. I, I've had uh, such a great time of of. Walking out of meetings with action steps. Uh, it's been, you know, seeing seeing people intellectually stimulated around. You know, again, we a lot of it is on Zoom, and so, you know, we sit there and and just, you know, watching how people how dialogue has just been, you know, so incredibly exhilarating. Um, you know, a lot of the great ideas, and you know, watching how respectful people are to each other and challenging them in in, in thoughtful ways, and, and almost hearing them think. Uh, you know, right in real time, it's, it's just been been incredible uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the organization. It's it's just highly productive, highly collaborative. Um, there's just a, a lot of great decision-making that goes on. We just recently did a, um, you know, research off-site where we just walk through and have many, many decisions. We pride ourselves that, you know, we're very action-oriented. And so, uh, you know, that's been, you know, some of the fun things that uh, that I've been fortunate enough to uh yeah, to observe in my in my six months
1: let me jump to my favorite questions that i ask all of my guests starting with what are you streaming these days give us your, your favorite netflix or amazon prime show or any podcast you might be listening to what what's keeping you entertained
2: sure um i would say uh been a fan of house of cards um my daughter and i watch a million little things um Joe Rogan's interviews with Elon Musk are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And I would have to say, you know, one of my favorite videos is a four-minute and 13-second uh, Jason Garrett speech as he talks about uh, One World Trade Center. It just, it's an amazing video that, you know, all my friends uh, get a text from me on a pretty regular basis just just level sets. It's a, it's a great video.
1: Huh, Really interesting. Uh, tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career.
2: Sure. I would say, uh, you know, my dad uh, had unbelievable work ethic. Um, he was a six-day-a-week guy. Um, one of my my first bosses was a uh, was a guy named Gus Economos, who unfortunately passed away in 9/11. Um, but you know, was 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 able to balance. Enormous credibility or industry credibility with a sense of humor, and uh, you know he always used, oh, used to tell me, "I may have taught you everything you know, but I didn't teach you everything I know." And I always, I always think that's a pretty funny, uh, funny quote. But uh, you know, and, and, the, and the last ones I would say on the quant space is uh, two gentlemen, and Bob Jones and Don Mulvihill. Bob was the the founder of the the GSAM. Uh, you know, quant equity business back in the day and, you know, taught me a lot and really helped shape my career and my interest in quantitative investing. And then Don was, a you know, an age-old colleague and boss of mine that, you know, really taught me a tremendous amount about um, investing and dealing with clients and, you know, two two great early role models that I had had uh, in the industry.
1: Quite quite interesting. Tell us about uh, some books. What do you, What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now?
2: Sure, so, uh, some of my... Favorite, especially since I had a decent amount of time, you know, between uh, between taking on the role at, at WorldQuant, um, you know, I was able to read uh, David Rubenstein's "How to Lead," which I thought was just terrific. Um, Satya Nutella had the hit refresh, which I thought was quite good. I was also able to to read uh, our books from our CEO, who has uh, two good ones: "Finding Alphas" and "The Unrules." So I got to plug those two; those were quite quite good and just interesting ways of thinking. Um, and then the one I'm reading now, which I think is a pretty cool book. It's called Outrageous Good Fortune. It's about a guy named Michael Burke, um, football hero, UPenn, CIA agent, overthrew a communist government, um, ran intelligence for Eastern Europe, uh, ran Br- Ringling Brothers uh, Circus. He was the executive at CBS Sports, president of the Yankees, and president of MSG. So talk about a pretty packed life. But that book's uh, called Outrageous Good Fortune. I'm in the middle of that, and it's, uh, it's pretty amazing.
1: Really, really quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in pursuing a career in quantitative finance?
2: Hmm. Um, I would say you know, to, to those that are, uh, they're, they're, first of all, they're welcome. Uh, we'd love to see them. Um, I'd say enjoy the journey. Uh, substantively network I think you learn so much from asking a lot of questions about what people do and how they do it. Um, be a sponge. Um, surround yourself with some really smart people um, that are equally driven. Um, and then you know, the, the last thing I would say, for, particularly for quant investors, is you know, marry the how and the why. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people either have the correlation understanding or the causation understanding. Correlation and they understand the, the math behind it. Causation, they understand the practical effects so it could work again. Um, marrying those two, I think, really makes for, um, you know, a phenomenal quantitative investor. Huh.
1: Quite, quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of quantitative investing and trading today that you wish you knew 20, 25 years ago when you were first starting out?
2: Um, I would say besides buying um, uh, it was Monster Beverage, which I think is up about six hundred thousand percent versus yes. the S and P is only up less than a thousand percent. You know, I would say I would say there's there's really nothing I would want to know in advance, and, I, and it might sound a little weird, but. I think it spoils the excitement I mean one of the great things about being in this quantitative business or really finance in general is just the exploration the quest for learning that's something that has driven me you know in my career that i've I've truly enjoyed and and knowing you know stuff would uh you know would, would kind of spoil that journey and so you know i, I the hiccups that i've had a, across the around the years and and the successes i think uh have made the journey awesome and yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say respectfully, no thanks on uh, on you know the other pieces because it wouldn't have made the journey
1: as fun. We have been speaking with Gary Kropovka. He is the president of World Quant. If you enjoy this conversation, well, please check out any of our previous almost 400 prior conversations. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Nick Falco is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.